Welcome to Mental Millennials with your host, Shelby Friesen. So today I'm here with Dr. Richardson, and he has been my family doctor for as long as I can remember. Um, and we actually recently had sort of like a reconnection. We hadn't, I hadn't seen him for a while, a few years, and then I started doing some triathlon training. And it was a weird coincidence that the lady I was training under, she actually knew Dave, which that Dave is his first name, which is weird for me <laughs> to say. Um, but she reconnected us and I'd reached out through email and then we actually went for a bike ride, um, I don't know, a month or so ago and kind of reconnected and talked about like what had happened through my life recently with like mental health and other things and then decided that we were going to do this podcast and kind of chat about um, what like becoming a doctor, some of the stuff around mental health in my situation with uh, Dave and um, kind of our contact with my kind of first seeings with anxiety and things like that. And then we'll just see where it goes from there. Um, so I'll let you introduce yourself quickly and then we can kind of get into your story a bit. Uh, excellent. Uh, Shelby, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, I just want to start with apologizing for uh, dropping you on your head when you were a baby. <laughs> it explains a lot to all of us that know you, but I, I do feel responsible for that. So yeah, I don't know what you want me to say introduction wise, but yeah, I'm a family doctor been been doing it for 30 years or so. Uh, had the privilege of uh, of being yours. I don't know if you want a little bit my background or. Um, I think that like, yeah, sure. Or we can just dive right in. Like, yeah, sure. Give some background and then we can just kind of dive into how you became a doctor and why and then go from there. Yeah, sure. My bio is I'm a, I'm a local boy. I grew up in Tawasson. That's my hometown. And uh, I went to SFU, then UBC Medical School. Uh, I interned at Royal Columbia in the New West and uh, did some locums and filled in for other doctors in Richmond for a number of years and came out to Langley, I think 1991. Mm. So that'll be, uh, that'll be 30 years uh, next year. Yeah. What's a locum? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, locum tenums is like a, it's like a Latin name for a doc who fills in. Oh, so, for, okay. so for example, when I go on vacation, if I'm lucky enough, I can find a locum to work for me mm, okay. while, while I'm away. Okay. So you went quite well. You kind of went all around Vancouver with the practices. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of young docs when they come out of medical school, they don't want to necessarily set up their own practice right away. So they'll, you know, they'll they'll do what we call locum. So you know, for a couple of years, they'll fill in for different docs, kind of figure out what works for them, what they want to do. Okay. So, yeah. Sweet. Um, okay. Well, let's just dive into where it kind of started for you. Like when when did you decide you were going to become a doctor? <laughs> Yeah, or how did that come about? <laughs> that's a good question. I, in school, I was always interested in sciences. And uh, um, my brothers both became engineers, but that didn't really interest me. <laughs> I wanted more of a sort of a people contact. Mm-hmm. So if you combine sciences and uh, interested in people, then, uh, you know, medicine seemed like a, a natural choice. Mm-hmm. So that kind of just kind of fell that way. Yeah. And did you get into it like right after high school? Well, you have to do... Uh, uh, what we call pre-med, which is you have to do, when I was around, you had to do a minimum of three years of, of a number of courses before you could apply to medical school. Mm-hmm. And um, after I made a large cash donation to the medical school, they accepted me <laughs> after three years. So, <laughs> some people get degrees, like some people get a, you know, a Bachelor of Science degree or a Bachelor of Arts degree or even a Master's before, mm-hmm. the, before they apply. And okay. then medical school is four years. And then uh, two more years of residency when you're done. And what's residency? 
presidency, you're a doctor, but um, you're not, uh, you have to sort of jump through some more hoops, kind of like articling for law students before mm. you can, they say, come to the bar, but uh, I, don't, yeah. I don't know, come to the stethoscope, I guess, <laughs> is, I guess is the equivalent. So. And when you first, I guess like in school, when you're in school, like do you work with patients and like people or is it mainly just like textbook stuff? Like I don't know anything about what you actually do. Sure, med- medical school. It's been a long time since I've been there, <laughs> shall we? But but in general, you, you know, you start with more uh, uh, classroom-based learning. Mm-hmm. So, you you know, you do anatomy, uh, physiology, you know, biology, those, those kind of things. And then you would move into more clinical work. Mm-hmm. So usually the first couple years are more sort of classroom learning. Mm-hmm. And then they unleash you on the unsuspecting public, you know, usually in your third year. <laughs> Okay, and then you get to work on actual people. Yeah, it's it's all supervised. So you know, you would uh, you would have a clinical instructor who would you know you'd see people and learn how to examine people and you know uh, come up with diagnostic plans and you know uh, sort of an investigation process and yeah. So that's kind of and then the progression goes. Like by the time you're in your last year of medical school, you're doing more and more. And then when you're a resident, you're essentially doing everything, mm-hmm. but you still have a supervisor. Mm-hmm. It, it is a weird, it is a, not a weird, that's not right. It is an adjustment when you s- finish being a resident and then you're working on your own and it's all of a sudden, oh wait, there, there's nobody else supervising me anymore. <laughs> you just do whatever you, <laughs> you want. Know, like, oh wait, there's no control on me anymore. So, yeah. And when that happened too, like, do you feel like... I feel like there's so many things to pick from when you're like diagnosing people and stuff. Do you, are you ever like, you must be second guessing certain things that. Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) Or like when you first started, like, yeah, I think that's probably the first, probably one of the issues when you first start, it's like, Oh, well, you know, I think this is a cold, but then you're, you know, it's just going, Whoa, what if it's, you know, Mm -hmm. polycythemia rubra vera and it's really rare, but you know, so I think you get more comfortable with, Mm -hmm. with, you know, the, sort of common diseases and not overthink things and have it settled, you know, have it settled a little bit more down so that you can just kind of do your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, if you, you, you can certainly get stuck thinking of the infinite possibilities. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of them, but you know, that's what, you know, you can always, you can always look things up. You can always um, ask somebody else. You can, you know, do some investigations that mm-hmm. you know might point you one direction or the other direction. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and then through like my practice, like through me seeing you, like in, I like, there's been so many different things. Like I've came for like colds and then I've came for like surgeries and you've like cut my arm open and taken stuff off my arm. How, did you learn all of that in medical school or do you like go and learn different surgery things after? Uh, yeah. So in medical school, you have an exposure to a lot of things. Um, and then, uh, what I did back then was what's called a rotating internship. So when you're done uh, medical school, it's a year of where you work at a hospital, essentially as a slave. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you sort of do a rotation in surgery. You do a rotation in obstetrics gynecology. You do a mm-hmm. rotation in pediatrics. That's where you develop a lot of your skills. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, learning, as you know, is a, is an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. You know, it never stops. So. You're, but, you're always learning. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to do brain surgery in the office, though. Yeah. Sure. There, has to be, there has to be some limit. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, it's, I think that's cool how you get to try all the different things. Kind of reminds me of, like, 
grade eight, when you go through all the different like cooking and woodwork and stuff, you get to kind of taste every aspect of it and learn about everything. Yeah. And then some people, you know, they go, they go through their medical school journey and um, they decide early on, you know, I, I want to be a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, their focus becomes really quite narrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've basically stayed broad. You haven't narrowed into anything. Yeah. Okay. Mostly because I don't have the intellectual ability to really be good at anything. So <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty average at a lot of things. So. Uh, that's good though. I like that. I like being 80% at a bunch of stuff instead of 101. Exactly. <laughs> um, for, I guess like we could, I don't know. Do you want to jump to kind of my scenario? Sure. With, I mean, with, I think, I think that would be, uh, yeah, I think that would be a, a sort of a great way to jump into your scenario. Cause I, yeah, I just, you know, I really respect what you've done and how you're trying to help people and, you know, your mental millennial sort of platform. I think, uh, I think it's, it's definitely needed. So, okay. Yeah. Um, so with me, like four years ago in my story, when I first realized like something was really wrong, I had been, it was that night after drinking, I was feeling really weird. And normally the things would just go like away from me. And I felt like if I just wait one more day, if I just wait one more day and that day never really came until I realized I should probably go see someone, go to the doctor. And when, like, I guess for me along, like I always had the belief that like, didn't matter what I did. I could just go see a doctor and I'll be okay. I'd be like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'll eat shit. I'll do whatever I want. And then I'll just go to the doctor's office and they'll fix me with whatever they do because they do that. And then I'll be fine. Um, and the only thing I'd ever really thought about getting was like diabetes because my whole family was like, you just eat so much sugar, all this stuff, you're going to get diabetes or you're going to be fat. So my kind of like view on health for my entire life was whether I was thin or had diabetes, which like, I don't know how I would ever tell if I had diabetes. I wouldn't know until I got tested. But since I was always thin, I just figured it was okay. Um, so when I came... Just, uh, just your test did come back. You have, you have diabetes. <laughs> sorry, sorry to, to bring that up now. We'll talk later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so when I first came in to see, I, and, and when I came to see you, I don't know if it was you or there's another doctor in the office and it was always one or the other. I forget his name, but, um, I don't remember what I said. I just knew that like I was in extreme. I didn't even know what was going on. I didn't know that I was having extreme panic or anxiety. I'd never, no one ever talked to me about it before. I'd never heard it from a friend saying like, this is what you're experiencing. No one really talked about it that much. So I was, I had no clue. So when I came in, I remember, well, I'll, I'll, I would know that I would have explained some sort of thing to you. And and what I remember is being prescribed um, for Ativan to calm down and then being told to get some exercise. Um, and though for me, I was just like, I was too scared to take the drugs. Um, cause I thought, I don't know, I was just having my own issues about taking pills and stuff. So I didn't want to do it. And for some reason for me, um, I didn't believe that they would be a fix. I think I just thought like, man, I don't know, like I'm so messed up. I don't think that's going to help. And then for me at that point too, like I could barely move at home. I was like, man, like there's no way I can go for a run or exercise. So I wasn't sure um, what to do, but I think like looking back on it now, 
I wonder, like my thing about it is like the communication of like, I don't even know what's going on then. You know what I mean? So like, I want, like, I guess I wonder how you felt or if there's anything that you remember from it. It's probably not a significant memory for you, but wondering how, like for me, it's like, how can the communication be better between the two people to explain those situations or like, or like what kind of other, um, scenarios or experiences have you had with mental health that are maybe similar or different or, or do you have that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about that a little bit on our Mm -hmm. bike ride, how, you know, um, in many ways I feel like I failed you. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are struggling and, uh, I mean, I don't remember the exact visits, right. But, you know, I think you were trying to articulate your struggles Mm -hmm. and, uh, perhaps didn't have the language to do that, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's my job to also pull that out of you and, um, maybe help you with that language, Mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, but it's also a difficult, it's a difficult process in an office visit, you know, Mm -hmm. a, a young man comes in he says, you know, I have these physical symptoms and, you know, probably the conversation went something like, well, I probably would have taken your history and examined you mm-hmm. and said, you know, Shelby, like things seem okay. Um, you know, we should maybe do some tests just to make mm-hmm. sure that, you know, your blood and everything's okay, that you don't have diabetes. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I might've talked about, you know, do you think this could be anxiety? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, maybe said, you know, this, this is a, a something you can use for overwhelming examining anxiety mm-hmm. while we try to try to sort this out. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think part of the solution is to bring mental illness out of the shadows mm-hmm. and, and to encourage a discussion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your part by having the conversations um, that people will hear, you know, the next young guy comes out and says, hey, you know what, I, this mental millennial guy, I've been listening to him and hey, I think I have anxiety. So, so I mean, and that's a start to be able to, mm-hmm. to go see, you know, your physician and and say, you know, like, do you think it could be anxiety? What, you know, what, what can I do here? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really suffering. And I think, I don't think men in general are very good at, um, articulating their suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, like we tend to keep it inside, you know, you say your symptoms and like, you know, what did he say? Oh, he said, I'm okay. You know, yeah. Like, you know, like, and I think we just go, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Kind of like suck it up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I don't know what, what kind of advice could have I given, uh, the younger Shelby, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not sure it's hard to go back, but, you know, like certainly if I see Shelby too, you know, <laughs> you know, tomorrow or, you know, tomorrow in the office that maybe, you know, my antenna are going to be a little bit higher, but yeah, I think I would, I would tell patients, um, just to be, you know, be persistent, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe say, you know, okay, that's all very well, but you know, what else could I do? Like, I just don't feel good. You're like, are there other options here? Mm-hmm. You know, is there, is there somebody else I should see? You know, is there things I should do with my life? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, and I think if you, if you have a good relationship with your doctor, you should be able to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, like 20 something year old males are not the, not the biggest conversationalists. <laughs> no. Right? Yeah. Like, you know, how are you? Fine. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah. And I think a lot of it for me too, was like feeling like I was crazy where I'm like coming in like, man, like I'm having a heart attack. Like I swear I'm going to die. And and I don't know if I expressed those things because I felt like a lot of times I'm like, okay, like I'm 20, like obviously I'm not going to die, but like, it feels like that. And I think that was the biggest thing for me too, where it's like, I'm trying to explain that I think I'm dying 
But then it's like, okay, man, you just need to calm down. Like, you're okay. It's fine. You just need to, like, figure that out. And we definitely did do all the stuff you talked about. Like, I rem- I did a diabetes test through you, um, which did come back negative. <laughs> but we definitely did lots of testing and all that stuff. And that was, yeah, it's like, I think the hardest part was for me to actually explain what the hell was going on um, and have someone on the other end be able to tell. And, like, I think another thing I wonder is, is there a, a place where, like, is there a, an area, like, like where do you tap out with help, with mental health? Like, where, like, because there's obviously certain things you can do, like, and true, I did actually learn that I was, the first time I thought I had anxiety was from coming in to see you. So, like, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have known what it was. So, that was something, but I still didn't really, okay, like, I had anxiety, but I didn't understand what that meant. Um, so trying to like figure that out and then wondering like where, like, I don't know, do you think there's an error you tap out where you would pass it off to somebody else? Um, just by the sheer volume of patients that I have, I, I can't spend two, yeah. like, two hours with you to talk about anxiety. Yeah, I right? know. Like, yeah. I, I just, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, when, yeah, so I'm, I'm tapping out at that point. Yeah. You know, um, like if it becomes a talking session or something, yeah, you would so send it to someone else. In in general, with mental health, there's you know there's three areas that are really important. Okay. So and no area is more important than the other. Mm-hmm. The first is lifestyle. So and I think you know you discovered that pretty much you know on mm-hmm. your own. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we had conversations about it. I, yeah, we I did. Guess I said exercise, but yeah, you said exercise. I mean, we definitely talked about like okay, like you're, you're definitely like eating pretty. It's. It's just hard to say, too. I mean, I guess the word healthy is, like, everyone's version of healthy is different. It's true. So that's a tough way to go with it, but, yeah. A bottle of vodka a day is yeah. pretty healthy. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, you know, I try to talk to people about lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. good nutrition, staying away from alcohol and, and drugs, particularly mm-hmm. if you're suffering, you know, uh, mood-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, good sleep habits, do things that you enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in that whole lifestyle thing, you know, probably all relaxation techniques, you know, um, mind body work, mm-hmm. uh, some people find human touch, you know, really, yeah. really useful. So that's sort of the one area. And then the secondary is counseling. I almost always suggest to people, you know, it's, it's a reasonable idea to try to find a therapist. Mm-hmm. It's a real problem because they're, you know, it costs money Yeah, uh, and there's not a lot of, uh, good, uh, therapists around who, mm-hmm. you know, who are going to see you for reduced rates. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has, you know, an extended health plan that will pay for it. Mm-hmm. And then the third area, and you know, like I think almost everybody has issues in their life that contribute to their mood disorder. Oh yeah, um, and I mean, mood disorders uh, are very much uh, genetic, but also very much environmental, and often a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you'll see people who, by everybody's estimate, they have the perfect life, you know, perfect family. Um, everything's going well in their lives, but they uh, suffer from anxiety and depression. But if you look at their family members, you know, their siblings, their parents, grandparents, you know, all suffered from a mood disorder. Mm -hmm. And on the other end is, you know, people who don't really have that history, but someone like their child dies and they become depressed or anxious. Mm -hmm. But I think most people are somewhere in that spectrum. So, I mean, I think they probably have the genetic predisposition, but then they also, you know, something in their life is contributing to how they're doing. Mm -hmm. So that's what, you know, counseling, I think, is really, really useful. Mm -hmm. And then the third area is medication. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and medication shouldn't just be thrown at you. It should be combined with those those other Mm -hmm. other things. 
Uh, I remember a study where they took people with anxiety and they exercised one group, another group they gave medication to, and then the third group they did both. Mm-hmm. And the group that exercised did just as well as the group that took medication. Mm. And the group that took both or did both actually did a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, the, the medication choices range from carrying around something like Ativan, which is essentially a tranquilizer. That, <laughs> yeah. That surprisingly, though, for a lot of people with anxiety and panic attacks, they carry around the Ativan and they don't need to use it. That is something that we talked about. Um because it gives you control back. So when you start freaking out and you're just getting like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, or, you know, you, you think, oh, I can take one of these pills and it'll calm me down. And then by thinking about the fact that you can take one of these pills, you don't have to take it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have a lot of people who suffer from anxiety who carry around, you know, five Ativan pills. And a year or two later, they come see me for another five because the five have disintegrated <laughs> in the bottle. But, yeah, but, yeah. but it's like a safety measure that they mm-hmm. have. And then, you know, then there's meditation, you, medication you take every day to try to try to improve your anxiety or your depression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the biggest struggles in uh, primary care or being a family doctor is the lack of mental health resources. Mm-hmm. So t- to try to access a psychiatrist. So, yeah, so you've done all those things and somebody's mm. still struggling um, and you're doing your very best. It's really difficult to access more resources because mm-hmm. they're so limited. And, and, you know, the truth is there's some significant population of really mentally ill people, you know, schizophrenia, you know, bipolar disorder with, you know, some psychotic symptoms and, and the psychiatrists are busy often and the mental health centers are busy often, you know, dealing with those individuals. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a challenge. Definitely is. So yeah. where, where, where would I tap out? I'd probably like to tap out earlier. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the time. Not not in your situation, but mm-hmm. but sadly, sometimes I'm I'm the only game in town for mm-hmm. for my patients. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I do what I can. Yeah. One thing in our office now is one of our uh one of our staff is a she took the psych nurse course. So she's okay. a psych, you know, LPN. Yeah, yeah. She's a really good resource because she'll spend time with people and talk to them and Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's a relatively new development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Kelly. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, so if Kelly was working in or you know was in the office at that time, that would have that would have really helped you and I. Mm-hmm. In that I could say, hey Shelby, maybe come back and well, see. you know spend an hour and talk to her. And mm-hmm. Maybe we can get to the bottom of this a little bit. So yeah, because maybe she can even like dig in with some of her stuff, she, and then she you just has, yeah, she just has more time. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think yeah, it's tough with like and with your like scheduling and stuff like when you bring people in do you choose the length or like how is the length set for each client? Um, I, I'm basically in charge of the booking process. Okay. But, but there is a, I mean, uh, physicians, the majority of us in BC, not all, but the majority of us work what's called fee for service. So mm-hmm. I see you, I send a bill to the government for, you know, an office visit to mm-hmm. see, to see this patient. Yeah. Um, and to make an income, you have to see, you know, a number of people, mm-hmm. um, but you also want to give it adequate time. So mm-hmm. it's a balancing act. Yeah, yeah. And since there's not enough family doctors, there's always the pressure. You know, will you take my brother? Will you see my cousin? You know, my friends move to town. So there's all like there's so many people who don't have a family doctor. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I'm pretty good at saying no, but but I mean, you know, if you said to me, you know, my best friend, I, you know, I would probably say yes. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, 
the sheer volume, it's kind of like having a busy family practice. It's kind of like, you know, this beast that needs to be fed. Mm -hmm. So you can't really just sort of sit around and yeah put your feet up and well no, the, that's not what tries but you, yeah you can't, you can't sort of maybe go at the pace that you would like to mm -hmm. it's always kind of a pace maybe a little faster than you would like it to be and and you know that's a problem because uh, i think you know when you're moving faster often you know little things that you could do that could make a difference don't happen mm -hmm. yeah i think that's like and I, I think that's the other part that a lot of people don't understand is that it also like to be a business and the way it works, even with the government and everything else, like it has to make money and work. Like if it doesn't, it doesn't help anybody at all. It wouldn't be there. Sure. So I think being able to see that, like, obviously there's a point where. And everybody wants you to be on time. But yeah. They want you to take lots of time with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Nobody wants to wait. No. But they want to, they, they, they make sure they want to make sure you take your time when you're with them. Yeah. Well, and so how many patients like are like you like because your practice is like full right now? Yes. What's the like patient number that you guys have? Well, it's it's a good question, and the the reason it's difficult to answer. There's a few thousand, I would think. Okay. But but you know, because some people might see once every ten years. Right. Right. And then there's other people I see every week. Mm -hmm. So and that and that adds up close. In general, you know, men between the ages of like twenty and fifty, mm -hmm. I hardly ever see them. You know, I usually see them when they hurt themselves. Okay. <laughs> right? You know, yeah. But typically, so, and then there's other groups, like if you have an 80-year-old with diabetes and heart failure, mm -hmm. you know, COPD, and, you know, you're going to see that person much more frequently. Mm -hmm. so. oh, that's kind of crazy. You don't really see men at all in that age range. Well, no, yeah, I mean, and, and that's another thing that um, I think we can do better as men. Mm -hmm. You know, I think... I think women are much better at sort of saying, well, I have a problem. They talk to their friends about their problem and their friends say, hey, why don't you do something? Go, go do that. You know? Yeah. I just remember there was this comic where, you know, um, the guy comes home and he says to his wife, yeah, well, Bob broke down in the lunchroom today. And she goes, well, why? What, what was going on? Uh, we, we left. We, we thought he wanted to be alone. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where if it was a bunch of women. Yeah, yeah. You know, they would be like, what's wrong? You know? and, mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I think we can do a better job as men to talk talk to each other and uh, encourage each other to get help. Mm -hmm. Which, in by the way, it's November. So, yeah. So I'm, this this is my mustache. Give us a you know. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm four days. This is all I got. Are you actually? Yeah, yeah. You can't even see it, right? No. I think you didn't shave this morning, and yeah. you've got more than I did. I have a couple of days too. I think on November, I'm yeah. from the first. And November, you know, like uh, they're 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 focusing even more now on. On uh, not only like men's cancers, like prostate cancer mm -hmm. and testicular cancer, but the, the real focus this year on mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of posts about it. And, uh, I, this I, think, and I think that's I think that's great. And I think mental health is really um, it's really been a struggle uh, for a lot of people since COVID hit. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of people who are vulnerable emotionally in the first place are now uh, very isolated. Mm -hmm. and, and we definitely have seen a lot more uh, mood disorders. Or people who have a mood disorder but were functioning pretty well. It's worse now. It's worse now. Yeah, I totally, I honestly keep forgetting that COVID's a thing sometimes because, like, it hasn't really affected my life that much and, like, my day-to-day -day, um, things. But, yeah, like, people who are going out and doing all these things are used to being around people all the time. Um, 
And depends where you live too, right? Like for yeah. me, at least I'm, I'm kind of out here. Like I can go for a walk in nature and stuff. But if you live downtown or in Surrey or somewhere in like a high rise, um, you're kind of limited to a very small, darker space. And a lot of seniors too. A lot mm -hmm. of seniors, you know, you think about that. really rely on, you know, family visits. And mm -hmm. you look at a lot of the people in the care homes. I mean, they don't get any visitors. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them have mild dementia and now they can't even get a visitor. They don't understand. Mm -hmm. You know, someone with dementia to explain COVID to them, like explain it again tomorrow. But <laughs> you know, like it's a real, it's a real, it's been a real struggle for I think a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, and like in the in the old folks' homes and stuff, like do you see patients that are in them? Um, so um, currently, uh, they're pretty shut because yeah. we, we try not to have people going there. But I have patients at various old folks' homes. Mm -hmm. um, in general, they they come to me. Oh, okay, they bring um, them there. I do go visit them. Um, what's sort of happened over the last 10, 15 years or so is that a lot of the homes have a designated physician that works there. Oh, okay. And actually go there like once a week. So it's probably better for everybody. Because, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm trying to see them, I'm, I'm going there, you know, either on my way to the office or when the office is done. Mm -hmm. um, and during COVID and stuff too, were you doing any telehealth stuff? Yeah. yeah so one of the biggest changes was when COVID hit, um, uh, people stopped coming in. Like they just stopped coming in. They stopped coming to emergency. They stopped coming to my office. It, it was- Oh, cause you work in the hospital too. Yeah, so it was kind of, it was kind of eerie. Like it was like, where are all these people? You know, cause mm -hmm. normally it's crazy busy and they just yeah. stopped. And I, hey, I, I was getting home early. I was taking nice long lunches. And then a good thing in collaboration with the government and the doctors of BC, they came up, uh, uh, we could always make telephones, but telephone calls, but they actually uh, made the telephone call essentially equivalent to an office visit. Mm. So then, you know, we could call people instead of seeing them. They didn't have to come to the office mm -hmm. and, and that worked really well. So the number of phone calls rapidly grew as people figured it out. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily a good thing for some because, you know, usually somebody phone my office, it takes a couple of weeks to get in to see me unless it's an emergency, but some people figured out they could phone me every day. So. Uh, I was gonna, I, that was my second question, like how many people the word, just the started word. calling a lot? The word, well, there's always a few. 99% mm -hmm. yeah, of people understand and are, you know, basically be decent and get it. And that, the 1% who are perhaps the worried well are really anxious, well, that's who they are, right? So, mm -hmm. and anyway, so the number of phone calls, probably we were, you know, seeing, probably it was like 80, 90% phone calls, mm -hmm. maybe 10, 20% people in the office. We never closed. Yeah. You know, there's certain things you can't do over the phone. You know, yeah. I have a spear through my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, grab the pointy end and, you know, so, <laughs> so we were always still seeing stuff. And then as COVID sort of, you know, got through the first wave, you know, it got about 50-50. Okay. And now as we're moving into the second wave, it, so far we haven't seen a huge increase in ill people with COVID. So the numbers are higher. So like, you know, we keep setting records for daily cases, but the hospitalizations and ICU admissions haven't, they've jumped a little bit. They haven't jumped as much. I don't think they're at the levels that they were when we were really, you know, high mm -hmm. in like April, May. And that's really the, the measure of the disease. Um, back in the spring, we were testing everybody. Mm -hmm. We were only testing, you know, like uh, healthcare workers. If you were sick enough that you might have to be in the hospital. Mm -hmm. and, and now everybody's getting tested. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, the next few months will determine, we'll see what happens, you know, like whether those 
you know, the number of hospitalizations and the number of ICU admissions starts climbing, then, you know, the actual burden of disease is going up. So, yeah, because if it's not, it's not really like, it's not killing people. Well, I think, I think yeah, two, two, two things, we're doing way more testing. Mm -hmm. So I think initially we thought probably the death rate was, you know, somewhere between like six, 7%. And it seems like it's more around two and a half, three percent of people who are getting infected. So now we're picking up way more cases. So we're getting probably a, a better measure of how lethal the virus is. Mm. And also I think the demographics have changed. The people who are coming back positive are all a lot of young people in that less vulnerable, you know, less vulnerable group. You know, mm -hmm. like the 20 to, you know, let's say 18 to 20 year old, sort of maybe 30 year old partiers are making up a big proportion of the people who are you know, testing positive. Mm -hmm. The problem with that, of course, is if you have a reservoir of positive cases in your community, eventually it's going to trickle into vulnerable people. Right, right. I mean, that's the real risk. That's the real worry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like, I don't know, it's kind of funny from my end where I think that's what I like about this whole scenario, as bad as it is, is that things like bars and stuff closed down, clubs and like you can't stay out late. I just don't enjoy doing that really. Like I'm happy to go for dinner with people, but I'm not, was never a big well, I was a big drinker at one point in my life, but lately, so now like for me, it was almost like, Hey, I never have to get asked to go out to drink ever as long as this is here. But what I see, just, just be clear, you're not suggesting the pandemic continue. So you don't have to get asked to go. Out. Yes. Oh, you are. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you, heard, you heard it here first. Yeah. So, but for me, it's like crazy to see how much people are willing to push to do like whatever they can to still drink and party with their friends. Like in that younger age group that you're saying is um, coming up with a lot of the cases. Because even in my own like friends or people in like, you know, closer friend groups that I know, like they're pushing to have parties or they'll just do whatever they can to stay out later and all this shit. And I'm like, I think there's, you know, there's become a real COVID fatigue, mm -hmm. you know, like people are just tired of it. it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, again, like 99% of people get it and understand. And even those young people who are, you know, partying, I think if you took them aside and said, you know, Hey Bob, do you want to kill my grandma? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like Bob's going to say, of course not. I go, well, Bob, but what you're doing, through your actions is putting my grandma at risk. Mm -hmm. I think Bob would feel about that. In fact, I think even, you know, a lot of them, when they're doing activities that they know they shouldn't be doing, they have some sense of, I know I shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That that lasts until two drinks. Yeah, then, <laughs> it doesn't last long. <laughs> I mean, yeah. alcohol, alcohol and, you know, it's like the catalyst for spreading the virus. You know, your inhibitions go down, you're in close proximity, you start yelling at each other and laughing. And, yeah. You know, that's how you end up spreading the virus. So. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think people basically are pretty, you know, are decent and, and mm -hmm. understand this, but it, it does get pretty frustrating and you get pretty, you know, pretty sad sometimes when you see some of the situations, like just Halloween, you know, like, yeah. how can anybody be so irresponsible and there's a thousand people packed together, you know, mm -hmm. down, downtown on Granville Street. So mm -hmm. I don't I don't know what the solution is. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think you can lock everybody up. So. No. Yeah, it's kind of like the world has to move on. I'm pretty sure, though, if the pandemic was affecting young people and they were the ones that were dying, they wouldn't be all partying together. No, <laughs> that's pretty, true. Pretty sure. All, all the seniors would be all out partying and drinking. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> the old folks' homes would be crazy. And all the young people are going, no, please don't do that. Yeah. No, it would probably be the exact same. Reverse if that was the case. I, I, probably not. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. It just, it just does make you laugh a little. So. Yeah. Um, with the with the COVID stuff and the other... Well, I guess, like, in general, do you see, like, an increase in in mental health over the years of being a doctor, like becoming some, like a thing? I think, I think, you know, mental health issues have always been present. I, I think in my, you know, 30 year career, um, I think definitely it's more acceptable to talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, I think there still is some stigma mm-hmm. um, attached to it. I, I think less and less so. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there more, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's maybe. more, yeah. or maybe just people are more willing to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, some of my older patients, you, you know, you talk to them about their family and, you know, yeah, my, my mom, she took to her bed for a year. Mm-hmm. She had a nervous breakdown. She took to her bed for a year. Well, you know, that's not a diagnosis. So probably her mom had just overwhelming severe depression. Mm-hmm. And uh, just couldn't function for a year. Mm-hmm. You know, people didn't really, didn't really talk about it. And, yeah. And, you know, I'm encouraged. I mean, I think people are talking about it more and more. I think it's okay to to admit that you have some mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm the first to admit I don't like November. I like it. Make like I I normally try to escape for a week in November and go someplace sunny. I am so blessed to be able to do that, mm-hmm. but uh, I can't, I can't do that this year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can already sort of feel kind of like I'm less energetic. Uh, my motivation's, you know, not, not quite there. I'm mm-hmm. just kind of a little sad. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's part of who I am. I am, and, you know, by mm-hmm. me talking about it, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody else, somebody else say, Hey, you know what? I, I got that too. Or, mm-hmm. you know, and I, yeah, like I said before, I think men are really have traditionally been really poor about talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that's changing. I think, you know, all credit to people like you. Mm-hmm. And you're sharing your story. You're, you know, you're, you know, just unabashedly saying, hey, this, this is my, this is my journey. This is my story. And, uh, you know, you, people learn from that and people mm-hmm. get brave and they're willing to talk. So good on you. Well, thanks. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what else I want to ask you. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Um, oh, I was kind of curious about like the, the medications and the long term stuff. Yeah. What do you like? What is your view around that that stuff? With some of like, like initially what you said about using them. That, that, like, like by the fact that you say that stuff. Where are you? <laughs> you know how much I like that it's garbage. You try to give me. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I, I was definitely. I'm not going to lie, like, I was very against it. Um, and I think a lot of that was, like, PTSD from... I had done drugs and things before um, I was experienced that severe anxiety. And I would also feel that after I did drugs, but at the time I didn't know what it was. I just think it was a hangover. So in my mind, I was calling it a hangover. But once I became aware of what it was through coming to see you and other people, then I linked the... Um, then I linked the drugs to the anxiety 
um, and like how it would make me like, I didn't like how I would feel like not in control of like my body and stuff. So that scared me to take anything else that was a pill. It didn't really matter what it was. Even if I went in, like I would freak out if I was going to take a vitamin C because I'd be like, shit, like, I don't know, maybe it's not vitamin C. What if it fucks me up? So I was very scared to take anything. Wasn't really just pre- how, how about Flintstones? anything i didn't want to put anything like in my mouth um well food and even foods carry me sometimes but either way i was definitely very against it i didn't want to take it um and then even after like i'd been through the natural approach sort of like dealing with the natural path and doing some diet change and all the lifestyle stuff you talked about i would like every anytime someone told me that they were going to take medication or do it i was like fuck man, that's just gonna kill you, you shouldn't do it. And I, but in reality, I'd actually never experienced it for myself. And I think that's very hard because I believe in trying stuff too. Like, how do you know? Like I, in reality, I shouldn't ever say anything about medication because I've never even tried it. So how do I even know what it does? Especially, especially in a sense to you, like my mental health. Do you have a list of all those people so I can talk to them? All those friends that you say, don't do it. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, well, I have <clears throat> friends who take it or friends who've tried like different ones. Like, man, like I want to, I want to try it. I'm like, okay. Like, and then I would kind of come back to what you said. I'm like, okay, I think if you're going to try it to kind of, to level you out and allow you, because sometimes people are so messed up, they can't put a good lifestyle in place. Like if you're that deep, you can't just get up out of bed and go for a run and make food. Yeah. Um, you might be so dark or down you want to if, use them. If someone's severely depressed, they they really don't have the motivation to do anything. Oh mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so the whole the whole topic of medication is is huge. Yeah, it's a lot. So let let's explore it a little. Um, so like I, you know, just the starting point is is that medication is not is not the be all end all. So you have, you have the whole, um, you know, three areas that I mentioned, you know, and they're all equally important. So lifestyle, uh, super important exercise, all those things, you know, counseling, seeing a good therapist, you know, really important as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the medications that we use to help particularly depression and anxiety, uh, there's the tranquilizers like I talked to you about, the Ativan, the Razapams, et cetera, the benzodiazepine sort of class of medications. Mm-hmm. They have an addictive potential. They're, they're not meant to uh, be the mainstay of treatment. You know, like a, a rescue treatment, uh, you know, overwhelming anxiety, panic attacks, you know, they have a role. Mm-hmm. Um, the other medications have no addictive potential. And, and really what they do is they... Um, help elevate the neurotransmitters in your brain. If you take a depressed or anxious individual and you actually do a functional scan of their brain, their brain chemicals are functioning at lower levels than they were prior. Medication has a role. It's not the end-all be-all. It shouldn't just be, oh, I'm just going to take medication. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the only thing I would say about that, for those people I was talking about who really have uh, a genetic biologic depression, Mm -hmm. sometimes medication is the only thing that really makes a difference to their lives. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, their lifestyle is good. You know, they don't have any issues. They just, you know, sadly suffer genetically runs in their family from mood disorders. Mm-hmm. But going back, you know, the three areas, uh, number one, lifestyle is super important. Exercise, taking good care of yourself. Number two, you know, 
counseling, therapy, mm-hmm. dealing with the issues in your life. And then number three is medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's really two sort of avenues in medication. So the first is um, uh, tranquilizers like Ativan, mm-hmm. uh, like we talked about before, which have an addictive potential. So they're not meant to be used as the mainstay of your treatment. They're sort of rescue medications. If you think of your little blue inhaler, if you have asthma as your rescue medication, your Ativan is kind of your rescue medication or something to use as you're trying to get, you know, established on a medication. So the medications that we use for depression and anxiety, um, they work on their neurotransmitters in your brain. So they have done some studies. If you take somebody who's not depressed and measure their brain chemicals to compare to when they are depressed, there's a significant change. Mm -hmm. So the medications help upregulate the receptors and then help gradually increase the neurotransmitter levels in your brain. So it's not like you take a pill and you feel better. Uh, You have to get established on the medication, get through any potential side effects and allow the medication to work. Mm -hmm. And that can often take a long time. It can take like, you know, every time you make an adjustment to a dose, it might take four weeks, six weeks for your body to sort of adjust. Mm. So it's a gradual process. The beauty of them is they're not addicting Mm -hmm. and, and they work well. So for, you know, people who, um, don't like the idea of medication, it's always worth exploring why. Yeah. They often have an experience like, you know, crazy aunt M took medication her whole life and she was just bat wing nuts as when she started <laughs> yeah. or, or, you know, like your experience that you shared, you know, like you, you had some adverse reactions after using drugs that sort of triggered, that was a trigger for you mm-hmm. why you didn't want to take prescription medications. Um, you know, you know, I have seen so many people's lives improved, quote, saved mm-hmm. by taking medication. Mm-hmm. So I, I can share my experience. Mm-hmm. Are there people who try medication and they don't like it? It's not for them. It doesn't really seem to be effective. Yes, mm-hmm. for, for sure. Um, I think if we can take the stigma away from thinking about um, using medication to help your help a mood disorder, help your mental health, um, I think that would be really beneficial. So mm-hmm. if somebody comes in to see me and I diagnose them, say with diabetes, Shelby, <laughs> say, and I say, hey, you, you know, your sugars are really high. You need to take this medication to lower your blood sugars. In general, that's not a heart cell. Mm-hmm. People go, okay, well, I, I get that. My blood sugars are high. If I leave them high, something bad could happen to me and I might die. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody says, hey, you know, your blood pressure is through the roof. If we don't bring your blood pressure down, you're going to have a stroke or a heart attack and die. People are usually, okay, I, I need to do that. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, you say to somebody, you know, you have really bad depression, I'd argue is there good depression. Anyways, you, you know, you have quite severe depression and, and you need to take this medication or I suggest you take this medication to try to treat your mood disorder often that's a harder sell. Mm-hmm. And I think that all ties really into the stigma of, of mental health. So I don't think you should think of medication as, as you know, your first option, mm-hmm. but, it, but it should always be an option. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I like, you know, an analogy is you're doing everything right. Like you're exercising, you're taking care of yourself, your diet's good, you're staying away from alcohol and drugs. And and you're, you know, you're seeing a therapist, good therapist, you have good sessions, but you're still just really sad. You know, the equivalent is your car's stuck in the mud and you just keep hitting the gas and the, and the wheels are just keep going around, but you're not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's time to do something else. Mm-hmm. And you know, the thing I always tell people about medication, it's not a one-way street. 
Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like if you don't take this pill, I'm going to hire people to come to your house and hold you down and inject you with, you know, medication. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Right? I mean, you have free will here, right? you know, but often I say, well, you know, what, if, what's the downside of trying? Well, you might get a side effects and you might, you might stop then, mm-hmm. but it has, you know, it has the huge potential for, uh, you know, make an improvement in your symptoms. Mm-hmm. I have patients that life on medication is good and life off medication is terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they function extremely well. Uh, they're, you know, they're happy as any of us are happy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, on medication, and if they stop, you know, everything deteriorates. And, and if you sort of extrapolate that to people who have, you know, other mental illnesses like schizophrenia, um, you know, a, a schizophrenic who is psychotic and has having delusions, you know, that they have superpowers or they're God or, you know, um, that person needs medication. Mm-hmm. You, you can't lifestyle or therapeutize that person out of psychosis. Mm-hmm. You know, bipolar people who are manic, you know, uh, that means that flight of ideas, they don't sleep, they have tons of energy, they buy a fishing boat, you know, that they're going to go fishing in the Atlantic and men make millions of dollars and they don't even know how to run a boat. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know, they, they do, they drive dangerously. They get involved in sexual behaviors. They spend money they don't have. I mean, those people's lives, like they're going to, they're going to ruin their life mm-hmm. if they don't take medication to get them out of that manic phase. Mm-hmm. So yeah, everything, I think everything has a role, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, Definitely medication shouldn't just be the role. And I think, yeah. as, I think as physicians, we're a little bit guilty um, in that you come see me, I've got so many, you know, minutes to see you and, you know, I, I can't talk, spend an hour talking about lifestyle or whatever, but, yeah. you know, I can, I can give you a prescription. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I really, I really try not to be that person. And I mm-hmm. think, I think the majority of physicians are the same, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, this is back in the sixties, you know, everybody took Valium. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's uh, an antipsychotic drug called uh, Stelazine, another one, Chlorpromazine. These were these were like came out in like the '60s, and there's actually ads, you know, like uh, suggesting you, if you're a tired housewife, you should take Chlorpromazine or Stelazine. You know, like so things change. Right? Did they still have ads like that now? No, 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 yeah, no, no. Yeah. But this was this was back. You know, some of the old magazines, like I've yeah. seen some of the ads, and it's like, whoa. Because there's like they can't advertise like that anymore, oh, like direct oh, drugs. There's, to no, people. there's very no, there's very strict regulation. All all the drug ads you see on TV are uh, are American. You, oh. know, you know, like you see Grandma frolicking with the kids, and they say, you know, Grandma's arthritis is under control. You know, her life's so much better since she's been taking this medication. And then they spend the next forty five seconds of the commercial telling you how it'll kill you. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, get, this, get that, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Yeah. I mean, those are made for the lawyers, not for, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's American. They don't have, we don't have them in Canada anymore. No, no, we don't really have a lot of, uh, there's definitely strict drug regulations or regulations on medications in Canada. Just like with alcohol, I don't think you're allowed to show anybody in a Canadian beer commercial drinking beer. Oh, they can just like hold it. Yeah, I, you should double check that because I I could just be entirely making that up. Like most stuff I say, I'm gonna look that up. But but I I think there's some regulation why you can't actually be drinking mm-hmm. alcohol. You could hold the alcohol and like happy about it, <laughs> but you can't you can't drink it. Oh, that's cool. No, I'm gonna look that up because I'm doing that 30 day sober challenge thing right now. So yeah, I'll yeah, use so, that so as, so as look, one of the emails. And then yeah, <clears throat> let me know if I'm full of it. 
when you, yeah. when you find <laughs> out. But I, I, I remember hearing that someplace. So, mm. yeah, yeah, because they like to to bring the dr- the drug. They and like I guess this is a d- another question. Like for you, like is it your practice? Meaning, like, did, the, did I steal from somebody? No. Or? <laughs> like when I come to your doctor's office, is it your doctor's office, or do you work oh, there? Like, oh, so oh, you're wondering about my business arrangement. Yeah, so, yeah. so uh, we're not a partnership. So there's six of us there. Okay, we're, we're what they're called. It's called a proprietorship, or we're associates. Not really associates, but we're all individual. Uh, we're all individuals, so we're not a group entity. So okay, legally we're all different, so we cost share. Okay, cool. Yeah so, yeah. so we have an office and so it's essentially all your practices. It's just your own. And, office. and then and then yeah, we have a monthly expense that we split. Mm-hmm. So each of us pays one six of us. And then, you know, we all we're all involved in the business decisions of our practice. So mm-hmm. we, we have a monthly meeting where we all get together and we talk about various issues. Mm-hmm. So And like for the, the drugs and things that are available, do you have access to like like say you there's like obviously a list of drugs. Where does that list come from? Like, like, can you just pick anything to give someone and they go to a pharmacy or like, are you only allowed to sell certain ones or is there like, a- I can get you whatever you want. What do you want? <laughs> what are you, what are you asking for? Yeah, I don't, I this, don't. Is, this is how doctors get in trouble. Yeah. What would you like? Um, no, I can prescribe anything. So, okay. So I guess maybe co- that's another thing in the States. Like basically, you know, when they show like people coming in, to like um, doctors or hospital and trying to sell them to, to, to sell their drug. You don't have that. You just get to choose from any drug. Correct. So, oh, okay. so, so this is yeah, different. The United States and Canada are very different uh, okay. when it comes to medicine. So uh, America is, is um, financially driven. Mm-hmm. So hospitals are for profit. Um, you know, their bills are huge medications down there are more expensive than they are in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're still expensive here, but, uh, yeah. So there, there is a for-profit system mm-hmm. in Canada. It's almost the reverse. So, um, in general, in Canada, the, the thrust is go as cheap as you can. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's groups, uh, that will do studies to show that, you know, this medication that's cheaper than the other medication is just as good. Mm-hmm. And then encourage physicians to prescribe that. You know, we, we have, you know, campaigns to prescribe less antibiotics. We have campaigns to, you know, use less medication, which which I think is a, a good thing. Well, that's cool. The downside of that system is if there's a really good medication that's new, it's almost never covered. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have Pharmacare. People get different coverage depending on their, their finances and their means. Pharmacare, quite conservative, doesn't in general cover new medications, or if there's a cheaper alternative, they'll cover that one. So, mm. so I think in your question was, how do I decide which medication to use? More so just like how, yeah, no, no, like that. I was more so asking what you answered, like how, like what do you have access to and how, like, how do you get the drugs you get to choose from sure. really? Which I think that's like really, that's, different than I thought because when you watch the movies or you hear about I mean I think that's a good piece of information for people because even me I had no clue how it worked and I just assumed it was the same as the states like they sell you shit you make money from it um whereas now I think that's useful for like the listeners here because they go like 
oh shit, like they're actually trying to do less of that. And it's like the complete opposite because most people think that. Like when I talk to people, like, well, they're just making money. They're just making money. Whereas like... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nip that in the bud right now. I do not get paid to write prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Whether you leave my office with or without a prescription, it, it does not change a thing. Mm-hmm. So my goal in general is people leave my office without a prescription. Mm-hmm. The least amount of medication people use, the best it is. Because the medication doesn't even go through you. No. Like you write that piece of paper, but then it goes from like that. It's like direct to consumer to the person. You're not in it. Ph- pharmacies would would really like you to all be on medication. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how, I mean, that's how they make them. I mean, nothing against pharmacists. Yeah, I mean, right? they have to make it. And, you know, a good pharmacist is worth its weight in gold. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember one woman coming in and saying to me, uh, she had, I don't know, I think she had like a bronchitis and I was giving her an antibiotic. And I think it was like, you know, the one I was giving her was a pill twice a day for, for 10 days. Mm-hmm. And she said, you guys get paid for prescriptions, don't you? And I said, ma'am, I, I don't know anything about you, about that, but here's your 20 prescriptions for one pill each. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we don't get paid to write prescriptions. I don't know where that came from. The other one I, the other one I hear is, you know, doctors know the cure for cancer. You ever heard yeah. of that? <laughs> well, like, doctors know the cure for cancer. So I'm like, okay, so... If you think I know the cure for cancer and I'm not telling people, that would make me like the most despicable human ever. Why would you come see me? Yeah. Are you are you think are you hoping you get on my good side and I tell you the secret? Yeah, yeah. And then what about what about the doctors that die of cancer? Is mm-hmm. it like, Bob, I'm sorry, but you have to die of cancer. You have to have colon cancer. We gotta keep the secret, Bob. I'm sorry. <laughs> you gotta take one for the team. <laughs> you gotta take one for the team. We're sorry, man. Your number came up. You know, oh. you know like I, I don't know. People have people get strange ideas. Um, I guess just look at the United States and what's going on with their political climate about strange ideas. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this it is, it is influenced from there, and I think especially a lot of it just comes from like for me, it comes from movies and stuff. From uh, what's the movie with where Buddy has AIDS? It's a true story. Matthew McConaughey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Something to do with Cowboy. I can't remember the name. Yeah, I forget, but he's like a cowboy in it. Um, And when he goes into the hospitals in that movie and the doctor's offices, he the drug companies are like pitching to uh, the doctors and telling them, hey, like if you sell our drug or if you sell our drug, we're going to give you all these perks and all these things. And it gives you like sort of it gives you behind the scenes view, but. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that's true or how it works here. So I think everything that I've seen is mainly movies and things that are actually produced in the U.S. So, like, it's about the U.S. system and not necessarily here. Although, like, just shouldn't let us completely off the hook because there are pharmaceutical reps. Okay. So um, they come... So through the years, like 20 years ago, pharmaceutical reps would take you to play golf. Yeah. Or, you know, they'd have dinners where they, you know, they'd wine and dine you. And the regulations have become much more strict because, you know, people say that potentially that's a conflict of interest. If, if you know, if some drug rep is giving me free stuff, I don't see the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, if I get lots of free stuff, <laughs> no. clearly it's, it's a conflict of interest. Yeah. So it's very, very regulated now. So they don't, um, they can't even give you a pen. But you what know? we're like... What are they trying to sell you so, on anyways? So, so they, they would have, because within a class of medications, there might be five. Let's take depression. Mm-hmm. You know, just to say there's five really good SSRIs, which are, you know, 
serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they're, they're a class of medications that mm-hmm. work well for anxiety and depression. Say there's five of them and they're all pretty equivalent. The pharmaceutical rep wants you to choose theirs. Mm-hmm. So they're going to come in and give you a presentation of why theirs is better. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can really use their information at face value because they're not going to tell you the truth that you don't, they don't want you to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'll tell you the truth. They're not allowed to lie to you about, <laughs> yeah. about studies of why this did this or that did that. But they're not going to tell you, yeah, but you know, drug C, our competitor, actually did this study where they showed they were better in this area. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not going to. Well, they wouldn't be a very good rep if they told you that. Really, yeah, right. <laughs> At least to their company. So, so you have to take that with a grain of salt. So, in general, I don't, I don't see drug reps. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like uh, in general, I just don't. So, th- because they're not, like that, still doesn't give you a commission on their nope. sale, though. Nope. They're just asking you to promote it so they get the sale through the pharmacies. Yeah. So, a pharmaceutical rep, if they're say their sales for their drug increase in their area i think they're going to get rewarded financially for that yeah they will yeah right so no in in their defense again what if their drug is the best Mm -hmm. right and they're just trying to spread the word that hey listen our drug is the best maybe it wasn't the first on the market but it's the best so you know you should consider it Mm -hmm. and you know i think what most physicians do is you're not going to use those all five yeah. So you're going to decide, hopefully, based a little bit on science and experience, mm-hmm. which one or two you are most comfortable with, and and have like you know that's those are your go tos. So mm-hmm. so if someone fits the criteria of depression that you think needs treatment, your first choice is usually this. If this one doesn't work out, your your second choice is usually this, and you have reasons why you do that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and that would be the same for diabetes. It'd be the same for you know heart failure, high blood pressure. You 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 try to you know, you, you can't get familiar with every drug. No. Right? You, you kind of want to choose and, and know a fair bit about the ones that you're prescribing. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, give patients informed consent as well. Yeah. And like for some of those drugs too, like say the ones that you've chosen for like mental health, have they been around for a long time or is there like a constantly a lot of them coming out? Yeah. So there's, there's always new and better. Mm-hmm. New and better isn't always new and better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, despite how it's kind of like, you know, uh, anything consumer, any consumer good, you know, the next one, the new one, it's better, it's newer, it's faster or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I, I tend not to jump on bandwagons. Like if there's a new medication out there and they're saying all these wonderful things about it, I'll often say, well, why don't we just wait, you know, a little bit, a little bit and see what the experience is. And do you see them like drop off? Like say someone launches a new medication and they come and sell you on it. Does it stay on the market forever or does it, they just go, okay, like no one's really using this. They must have to not sell it. Or is it yeah. really large companies constantly they, trying to create new things? Yes, there's, a, there's always, um, I, this, this is a whole area, fascinating area. So <laughs> um, it used to be you created the drug, you get the patent, you keep the patent of that drug. You're the only one that can make it and sell it. Okay. And then they decided that, well, that's not, that's not okay because then you can just artificially keep the price of your medication high. So mm-hmm. they have limits on patents. But what's happened now is that means any new drug that comes out, it's really good. The company that did all the R&D has to get all their profit out of it within the first number of years because then the patent expires and then the generic drug companies can make it. Oh, so, so you can't so, hold that patent forever. No, so, so you know, like Viagra brand, like you heard the commercials, yeah. there's, now, there's now a name brand Viagra, right? So they had to get all their money out of it 
when they first released it, mm-hmm. right? And now the generic can make it, so you know they can't get their money out. So actually, artificially, well, not artificially, it makes the usually often newer medications are more expensive initially because the drug companies trying to get all their money out of it before their patent expires. So, in answer oh. to your previous question, uh, medications that are good that work well stick around. Okay. So if there's a if there's a really good medication for blood pressure and it works and it's safe and you don't have side effects, it sticks. Mm-hmm. Eventually it gets cheaper because the generic companies start making it, you know? Mm-hmm. If there's a medication for blood pressure uh, that, you know, had some significant side effects, didn't work that well, it'll drop off. They'll stop making it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but you're probably right, you know, like in uh, probably some degree of a cycling and a new medication comes up, everybody says all these wonderful things about it. The sales go up and the use goes up. And then probably it filters down to the level that it should be. Yeah. And then if it's something else comes along that's better, then that's going to probably drop off the back end. Mm-hmm. You know, like 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 we don't put leeches on anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Because like, <laughs> well, people, you know, we don't we don't bleed people anymore. You no. Know? And and you know, fifty years from now. Uh, I'd like to think that's not going to happen, but there's going to be a bunch of docs sitting around going, can you believe that 50 years ago, this is what they used for this problem? Mm-hmm. So, cause things evolve, right? Yeah. So, can always be the case. Yeah. And you even look at the like mental health, um, the things that people used to do to treat mental health, um, you know, uh, um, insulin induced seizures, you know, lobotomies, um, you know, um, all sorts of like shockwave therapy without any sedation, mm-hmm. you know, locking people up in asylums. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we're evolving. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I even talked to my grandpa about it. Cause I was curious. I was like, man, like, was, was this always a thing? Like when you were 20 or like younger, what did you, like, what did you call it? Or, or what was it like back then? And even doctors, he was like, man, like now there's like neurosurgeon, doctors, um, psychiatrists, like all these different people. He's like back when I was like 15, 20, like you go to the doctor, they do everything. He's even dentist. He's like, doctor pulls your teeth. Doctor does your broken leg. Like there was just a doctor. There wasn't everything else. And he said that basically like if they thought you were mentally ill, they just sent you to like a mental illness, like a, Saint insane asylum and that was it like yeah. that's where you went that's goodbye all you bob have a have a good yeah. life yeah it's pretty sad mm-hmm. a lot of sad stories and i mean definitely we've come a long ways from that but i still think there's a long ways to go for mental illness even if you think um you think about shockwave therapy since i brought it up yeah um it actually has a role mm-hmm. um so you know people say what well for whatever reason having a seizure have like it's somehow it's like like reset up, you're rebooting your computer and it seems to really uh, make a difference to people who have treatment-resistant depression, you know, psychosis, that often actually ECT will actually make a huge difference to someone's life. I've had a few patients have it, and it, it's been a lifesaver for them. Really? And it, but, it, but the way they do it now is they give you a general anesthetic. Mm. They put you to sleep, and they actually give you medications that paralyze your muscles. So it's like when you, when you have your gallbladder out, it's the same procedure. And then they induce a seizure in your brain. So, oh, you, so it's not like having a crazy body you don't, seizure. You, you, don't, you don't thrash around. and mm-hmm. You just, just, the electrical activity of a seizure, which is just, that's essentially what it is. It's, you know, unrestrained electrical activity that spreads around your brain happens with you just lying there peacefully mm-hmm. sedated. 
So, uh, and that's done through the medical system, like yeah. in a hospital. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. And again, like it's for really <laughs> sick people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of like thinking about like if someone has a heart that's failing, you know, the ultimate thing is a heart transplant. I mean, that's for the really, really sick, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like maybe you don't, you don't have a little chest pain, and I go, "Hey, Shelby, do you, you ever thought about a heart transplant?" <laughs> yeah, although I would have maybe liked that back in yeah, the day. Right. Oh, that's awesome! Well, yeah, it's cool to hear about all the like actual kind of behind the scenes of like the drugs, how they're made, how like the office works and stuff. Because I think a lot of a lot for me was like actually based around that where I'm kind of like, okay, I just kind of, maybe it was like, and maybe it wasn't even just the doctor. Maybe I didn't believe in the system or that's what other people are against too. It's like, it's not just the person you're seeing for me a lot. It's like, what's going on behind. And like, if you're believing that it's a money grab and this big scammy thing, um, it just doesn't make anything about it feel very good. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's definitely people who view it antagonistically, like mm-hmm. it's a system yeah. You know, like, um, which I don't know how to, how to dispel that. I mean, it comes from somewhere for people, mm-hmm. like whether, you know, their friends are talking to you about it or whether there's some family issue that, you know, has led to that or some yeah. con- preconceived idea. But I mean, the people in the medical system in general, I can tell you are good people who are trying to help. Mm-hmm. I mean, does the medical system have some bad eggs? Sure. Does, yeah. Doesn't every profession? Yeah. Yeah. I'm hope I'm not one of the bad eggs, but no, but yeah. So I mean, I I know, like I, I I can tell you the people I work with, you know, we're we're trying to do our best to to try to help people. Mm-hmm. Sure, we all have our limitations, doesn't everybody? But yeah. Do I ever get grumpy? Sure. <laughs> do I ever say things to patients? I go, really, Dave? Did you? Couldn't you just have held that in? Sure, you were a little ir- irritated. Did you really have to? Couldn't you just held that in for a little while longer? <laughs> yeah, sure. We all, you know, we all have bad moments, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. I just wish I had a better moment when you came to see me. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's still good. Like at the end of the day, maybe it wasn't, you know, the best case scenario then, but to me, it's like the best case scenario now. Maybe it's the journey that you needed to uh, you needed to go through. Yeah, that's the thing. I just feel like everything happens for a reason. And like I used to hold stuff against people a lot where it's like, okay, they didn't do this or they did that. But again, it's just like, I don't know. That's just the way things happen and it happens. That's what am I going to do about it? It's true. <laughs> can sit there and, you know, dwell or cry about it and whatever. But I think it's cooler to do this now and like get to reach out and, um, you know, kind of uncover things that happen and learn about the things that I should have asked back then, right? Like if I would have asked these questions, then I would have probably tried different things and, and done other stuff as well. And um, so I think that's cool. And well, I think it's a, like, like we talked about er- earlier, it's a learning process. It's mm-hmm. a learning process for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I hopefully learn from my patients as well. Mm-hmm. Like hearing your experience, you know, uh, that's in there now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, I could maybe use that moving forward with somebody else, maybe make a little bit more of a difference. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's awesome. And like, I'm super stoked too that you came out and, and did this because I think for me, like I was definitely nervous to reach out to any doctors. And I was like, man, I don't really want to reach out to mine. Cause that's like, that might be weird. I was like, but I don't know what they're going to be willing to talk about. It is a little weird. Yeah. No, it's, not. it's all good. Yeah. And like, for me, I don't know. I was just like, man, I don't know what, you know, what will they talk about? 
Like, I was even nervous that I thought you might not want to talk about drugs or say, like, kind of how the behind the scenes work and things like that, where, like, was definitely what... Um, yeah. I don't know. Information, education, those are those mm-hmm. are powerful things. They're never a negative thing. Yeah. And it's like, it's nothing really to hide. It's just how it works. We just hide. We just bury our mistakes, right? Yeah. So that's what, that's what everybody says. Yeah. Yeah. We just hide them. Uh, little, well, little door under the office. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think, you know, like, like I say, you know, 99% of people are decent people just trying to, you know, live and love and laugh and, mm-hmm. you know, take care of their families and, uh, you know, try to get along with each other. So, I mean, I think that's, that's what's to remember. We're all, we're all in this ball of dirt together hurtling through space. So mm-hmm. let's try to support each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I even have that as a saying. So <laughs> sometimes, <clears throat> if, you know, your lives can your life can get really hectic and crazy, and mm-hmm. you're just you're just like you know frazzled. And I just say to myself, "Ball of dirt," because how much control do you really have? We're mm-hmm. just on a ball of dirt, hurting through space. So that could end any minute. Yeah, big, big giant just goes squish. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to think about sometimes. Where you're just like, I, I use the same thing. I read a book, and they talked about like if you're feeling like anything bad or like, um you know, same thing, frazzled, whatever, you're just stressed, like, literally just go outside and stare at the sky and remember, like, man, you're just on this chunk of earth, nothing flying through space, like, what does it even matter? Um, and, not, and not to take anything against uh, people who have a strong faith, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, we, we all have uh, different perspectives, but mm-hmm. even, even if, you know, from that basis, if you have a real strong faith and, you know, there's a, there's a different perspective, it's still... You're still, you know, you're, you're still at the whim of somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyways. Awesome. Okay. okay. Well, I think good to cut it there. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks for all the information and, and no sharing and coming out and being willing to do this. It's been awesome to be able to reconnect and, and talk about this stuff years later and hopefully stay in touch and do some more biking and other things. And For sure. Yeah. This time, if you could slow down so I could keep up, I appreciate <laughs> I think that. that's the other way around. No. <laughs> Don't listen to him. Yeah. Anyways, thanks, Shelby. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming out. It was good. No problem.